Have you thought this through? No way will that work. Are you sure? Is there any money in that? You'll never make any money doing that. How are you going to pay the mortgage? Just get a job. Are you going to try to settle that? Why can't you be normal like anybody else? All right. Were your parents morons too? Savvy entrepreneur to the rescue! Congratulations, that really turned out well. I'm a really good job. I'm really, really, I'm surprised. You know, I wish I thought of that. I never thought anyone would How did you do that? I'm so glad you're here to your I wish I had the courage to follow my friends. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Savvy Entrepreneur Show. We're broadcasting on WLCB 101.5 FM based here in the greater Chicago, Milwaukee area. If you're an entrepreneur or a small business person or thinking about becoming one, this show is for you. I'm Doris Nagel, your host for the next hour. I'm a crazy serial entrepreneur myself, and I've also counseled lots of other startups and small businesses over the past 30 years. I've seen lots of mistakes, and my goal is to offer a helping hand to other entrepreneurs and hopefully to inspire and maybe make your journey just a little bit more fun and interesting. To help with that, I have guests every week on the show who are willing to share their stories and advice. And this week's guest is Dr. Laura Gallagher. She's the founder and CEO of her company called Gallagher Edge. Now, Dr. Gallagher has worked in the field of professional and personal development since 2005. Laura, as she says I can call her, is an organizational psychologist. She's a speaker as well, a facilitator, and an executive coach. She's the founder and CEO, as I mentioned, of her company, Gallagher Edge, which she started in 2013. She's had quite an interesting career, and it started after a very sad event, which was in 2003, when the space shuttle Columbia exploded upon re-entry, killing all of the astronauts on board, sadly. After that, NASA hired Laura and a team of organizational psychologists to change the cultural influences that were deemed to play a role in the accident. She worked there for eight years to positively influence their culture at NASA, their leadership capacity, and improve organizational performance at the Kennedy Space Center. Later, she was also hired to help in manage change management with employee performance processes at the Walt Disney Parks and Resorts. She also says she loves stand-up comedy and improv. Now, about Gallagher Edge, the company applies the science of human behavior to organizations to create highly effective cultures. The company has helped numerous C-suite teams successfully take their company to the next level growing their capacity to lead and to succeed. So with that introduction, Laura, thanks so much for being on the show today. Welcome to the Savvy Entrepreneur Show. Thank you so much, Doris, for having me. Well, thank you for being with us. You know, I have to ask kind of a dumb question, but what exactly is culture when it comes to business? How do I know it when I see it? What is it? I love this question. So culture is an emergent property of an organization, and it emerges from the interactions of the behaviors of the people. And that's part of why it becomes so tricky. It's this emergent property. It's not something we can work on directly. We have to be able to understand the organization as a system and then understand humans as complex creatures. And once we understand those things and we can be really intentional about them, then we can actually guide culture. You know, it's interesting you say that because I've worked for and with a number of businesses that I, I think don't even really understand what their culture is or they think it's something that it's not. You know, so a lot of organizations, almost all of them say, oh, I value our employees employees come first or we're open to new ideas and diversity or whatever it is. And yet if you work there, you know, you, you'll talk to employees and you'll hear them say this at some management meeting and employees will just roll their eyes or customers yeah. on the side will say, 
what a bunch of BS because that's not what this company is. So why is it so hard for leaders within a company to even clearly see what their culture is, much less try to change it if they want to? Uh, okay, a couple things there. One is our intentions as human beings do not always align with our impact, right? <laughs> well, that's like, so true. Yeah, right. Think about the dynamic between any two people. You know, if I was to say something and I just think I'm being helpful, but it offends you, right? Or you feel really hurt. Probably what you would want if you were open with me and said, you know, you know, hey, that hurt my feelings or hey, I don't like the way that you said that. Hopefully what I would do is say, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. I don't want to hurt your feelings. I'm so sorry that my words hurt you. Often what we do is go, well, that's not what I, I wasn't trying to hurt you, right? Like we have this sort of defensive, like, no, 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 but look at my intentions. Look at my intentions, actually acknowledging the impact. Right. So you, you didn't hear me right. Yeah. And we want people to understand our intentions. So I even get why people want to do that. They want to point to, oh, but my intention was good. My intention was positive. And that does matter and impact matters. And so the other reason I think leaders misunderstand their own culture or they might make statements that the employees roll their eyes at is because they underestimate how much intentionality is required to have a really great culture, especially as a company is growing. Right. So from an entre entrepreneurial perspective, most of us are trying to grow our companies. And so I don't like being gender specific. Right. But I hear so often because I work with a lot of tech companies, you know, like we used to be like five guys in a garage and, you know, everything was easy and great. And now we've got 25 people and it's so much harder to get anything done. So, yeah, when you're five times the size, a whole lot more intentionality is needed. And it's just something that I think a lot of leaders underestimate. Mm -hmm. In what little I've gleaned, I would definitely agree with that. So how do you figure out what your culture really is as a company? I mean, how do you take those blinders off and recognize, oh, so we're really not very open to new ideas or, you know, whatever it is. Right. Well, I mean, one of the very pragmatic tools that we use when we work with our clients is we actually do an organizational assessment that's based around our specific missing link culture model. And there's, you know, plenty of assessments that are out there that really give your employees a voice. And so that's one way to do it. So when you're clear about what you want your culture to be, you have a sense of what it means to have an effective culture. You want to check that out, you know, get from your employees, their opinions about the impact that working in the, the organization is having on them. Does it actually align with your intentions or is there misalignment? So organizational assessment is a really powerful way to begin to get a clearer picture of what you really have in front of you and how how far you have to go to get where you're trying to be. So why is culture so important? I mean, you'll see lots of business articles written about it. Why do you think it's so important to get right? So culture is the way that we look at this. It's so much more than having values on the wall or having a ping pong table that shows, hey, we're fun. You know, culture is everything about how things happen in an organization. It's everything about what the interactions look like between the human beings. And so when you're talking about the organization, it's this complex adaptive system, right? Like you push on a human, the human's probably going to push back. You can't simply tell somebody what to do and they automatically do it. We don't work like robots, right? And so culture is is nebulous and it's abstract, but it is everything about how the business operates. There's this really, really great quote from Lou Gerstner who led a big turnaround at IBM in the 90s. And what he said is he learned through that process that culture is not just one element of the business. It is the whole thing. It is it is the game. It's not just yeah. one piece of it. And so right. that's how we view it. Yeah. You know, I look back in my time at corporate America and mostly it was about these big exercises of coming up with a new mission statement. Yeah. And that was somehow going to fundamentally change the company. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, I don't no, I don't think so. You know, yeah. I think one of the other challenges is that organizations are changing so quickly today, especially. You know, they need to change. They need to change if they're small 
oftentimes they're growing quickly or they're trying to pivot quickly. And big companies are trying to be nimble too. You know, they let go of a lot of people, which includes a lot of institutional memory, if you will, of how things are done. And so I think it's I think it becomes very difficult for companies, you know, the intentionality you mentioned, I think is tough, but it becomes even more difficult when the organization itself is changing very quickly. Do you agree? Well, you're making so many good points here, right, in terms of how critical it is for an organization to be able to change and adapt. I mean, it's everything. If the year 2020 has shown us anything, it's that it's, you know, change is going to happen and it's often going to be something that's difficult to predict or something that we're not paying attention to. And so how we respond to change when it happens to us and also being able to anticipate change, perhaps not on a global pandemic scale, but, you know, changes within your industry. So we look at an organization's capacity to adapt as an attribute and not an accident. So just like being intentional about culture, you can actually create in your culture openness to change. That can be an element of what you're cultivating. You want to be able to actually develop each individual human self. You know, we talk about Culture is from the inside out. So when you have humans who are resistant to change, we actually want to help them go deep into themselves to figure out what consciously and subconsciously is challenging them as a human being about this change. Because it's usually a misunderstanding for one, or there's some kind of distortion in how they see themselves that triggers insecurities. And so they put up a smoke screen saying, well, I don't want to do this change because of that thing over there. And leaders go, huh? Because it doesn't make any sense because it doesn't make sense because they're not even in touch with their own real feelings about it. So even something like change, we want to be able to look at that at all levels. We want to look at it from an industry perspective all the way down to each individual human. How are you responding to change? You know, it, it is difficult because I think we as human beings, most of us are pretty hardwired to resist change, at least at some level or some aspects of our lives. And it's it's hard because I think psychologically, we like to have some certainty. And when a lot is changing, it's very easy to fall back on old behaviors or old ways of thinking because that's kind of how we're wired as human beings, right? Yeah, well, we are we are extremely loss averse as humans. So evolutionarily speaking, if we were losing resources, we would literally fear for our survival. And so we have a disproportionate fear response to the idea of losing something. And so when change is imposed upon us, or it feels like somebody's asking for change, our brains first and foremost go to, what am I going to lose? And that then becomes, we focus on that way disproportionate, like at least five times as much we seem to place this value on. But what if I lose this thing? And we have a fear response and we can choose as human beings where we're putting our attention and focus. And so part of the invitation is with every single change, you will have a loss and a gain or really losses and gains. Every change, right? Even changes that you want, Doris, you might I want to lose a few a few pounds, but, but, <laughs> yeah, well, but there's a lot yeah. of resistance there. Well, because there is there is a loss there. If you say I want to lose a few pounds, okay, well the you know the gain, the benefit is you know maybe my clothes fit better or I feel better about myself. But some of the loss might be I don't get to eat some of the foods I love or right. I don't get to sleep in the same amount of time every morning because now I'm working right. out. There's always right. both, and we get to right. choose where we focus our energy. So. I like to encourage people to recognize that we don't resist change. We fear loss and there are always gains, even in the faces in the face of losses. So let's just make sure we're giving enough brain space to look at the gains. Well, right. And sometimes the devil we know is easier to deal with than the devil we don't know. So, for example, I know how much I want that piece of chocolate cheesecake. (laughs) And how good it's going to taste, because I've Mm -hmm. had it before. What I don't know is whether people are going to notice that I've lost weight or how much better I'm going to feel if I've lost those few pounds, right? Just I'm just taking a very silly example, but, you know, at least it's one that's very relatable for a lot of people, I think. 
Absolutely. I think it's a great example. And and what you're pulling on here about our desire for certainty is so true. There's a saying that humans prefer certain misery over the misery of uncertainty. <laughs> and that's very true. And it's also evolutionary nature. And the reason I, I highlight some of the you know evolutionary basis for how we respond to things as human beings is we're largely past that. I mean, I know we've got a lot of problems in the world, but the vast majority of us day to day are not literally fearing for our survival, but our brains haven't quite caught up yet. And so we have these like fear based survival responses when that's not really what's going on around us. And so we have a lot of emotions that are not genuinely helping us anymore. They're actually getting in our way. And so oh, wow. to be able to rewire our brains to focus on things like the gains in the face of the change is is something we can do. We have that yeah. ability as humans and it's super cool. Yeah. Right. We uh, we like to think of ourselves as highly evolved, but that crocodile brain is still <laughs> still still busy working away, whether we you know, whether we're aware of it or not. Right. And certainty used to help us survive. If we yeah. could predict what was going to happen, we felt more comfortable in our in our space. And that's true to a degree if you're talking about the survival of a business, but it's not nearly to the degree that it used to be. Yeah. Well, so let's say there's awareness and a vision among company leaders for the change they'd like to see in their culture or the culture they want to maintain as they grow. What are some of the most common mistakes you've seen, though, among company leaders in trying to do that? So one of the biggest mistakes that I see, I'm going to pull on your example from before, where it's like, oh, we need to change the culture. Well, let's develop a new mission statement, right? So that is rooted in some good stuff. If we have a really powerful statement or purpose as a company about why we exist, that's actually really useful to drive engagement. And so it comes from a good place, right, when leaders are, are trying to do that. And if they haven't done some of the other work that I believe really needs to precede that, then whatever they come up with isn't going to resonate. So let me be more specific. Let's say I have a team of leaders together in a room working to come up with this mission statement, but there's all kinds of interpersonal tension and conflict that comes up or the absence of conflict, artificial harmony. You know, three people are sitting in the corner going, this is stupid. I don't like this. Right. At all. They don't say that because that's a hard conversation and people don't want to have that hard conversation or they don't have the skills to effectively challenge the ideas that somebody else is bringing. And so what you get is something that not even the whole leadership team even believes in. So you don't actually have advocacy built into the whole process. Right. And so you, you have to start there. You have to start with giving people the level of individual and personal self-awareness to know when they are shutting down healthy communication, either by getting angry and hostile or by withdrawing and no longer participating in the conversation, agreeing with somebody when they don't really agree. We're we're not honest as humans a shocking amount of the time. We really work hard to avoid hard conversations. We really avoid conflict. And so if we haven't built up the maturity in the organization, starting with the leadership, to be able to have those conversations where we get through resistance and we have healthy conflict, then we're not going to have a product people really believe in. You know, I was struck as I was listening to you talk about this, of my days back in corporate America where the cognitive dissonance was something that was was really amazing. And it's something employees pick up on. By cognitive dissonance, I just mean employers would say, I really value you. Come to me and talk to me about anything. And you swallow hard, you go talk to them, and then you get shut down. Or you hear about someone else who went to talk about it and they got shut down, they got fired, they got demoted, whatever. And so, you know, there's all these messages oftentimes in organizations that cut across whatever your mouth might be saying. You know, there's a lot of lip flapping and, and people saying things, but are they walking the talk? And that, I think, goes to the intentionality point you made earlier how in the world do you get the CEO of a company or the management team to become more intentional about walking the talk that they say they want? So they have to want to, right? For like, there's this great joke about psychologists, you know, how many psychologists does it take to change a light bulb? 
<laughs> just one, but the light bulb has to want to change. <laughs> right? Oh, so, funny, funny. Um, I did not do that in my stand-up comedy set, but I, I shared it with you <laughs> and your listeners. Um, but there's there's a lot of truth there. So, you know, a CEO, any leader in an organization, they have to feel motivated to make a change in their own behavior. And so one of the most damaging patterns or cycles that I see is a CEO who's doing exactly what you're saying, right? Sort of lip service. They're saying, oh, yeah, come talk to me. I'm totally open. But they don't then demonstrate that. And then people gossip and triangulate and they oh, don't say that. He says that, but he's not really open. And so then nobody is actually going back to the CEO to give him or her that tough feedback. Nobody is doing it. And so this leader doesn't have any reason to change. They're not motivated to change. They're not aware of of an issue or they get stuck in this mistaken belief that the issue lies with everybody else. I don't Uh, know why they're not doing what I told them to do. Right. We get very blamey in our own defensiveness. And so we have to be able to disrupt the patterns that come up between people. It's one of the first things that we do when we get in there with teams is we disrupt whatever their current communication patterns are. And even if they're, you know, reasonably good, everybody still falls into some dysfunctional communication patterns. It's it's part of our human nature. So we really want to focus on building the skill to have open dialogue and understand what it actually means to be open. Interesting. You know, we've been talking about changing company culture. I guess in some ways, the most fun work probably is helping a small company establish its culture from the get-go. And I'm guessing that's probably easier, certainly when you're talking about big organizations the size of NASA or Walt Disney theme parks. It's really difficult with big organizations. But how do you maintain a culture? So let's say you're you're a startup and you're happy with the culture that you've created. How do you maintain that as you grow? You want to be able to talk about it. You want to be able to articulate to other people what is your culture. And so there are a couple ways to do that. The most common way is for people to describe what their core values are. And I really like the way Patrick Lencioni talks about values in his book, The Advantage. Part of what he does is he highlights kind of similar to what you mentioned before, Doris, about when people sort of laugh in the corner or roll their eyes about, oh, sure, those are our values. Okay. He's like, look, if you're not already kicking butt at these values, then do not call them core values. You got to be real with yourself. You got to be real with with the people. So if you're not better than 90 percent of companies out there at whatever this value supposedly is, then be real with yourself and with your team and call it an aspirational value. Acknowledge that it's something that you want to become core, but it's not core today. And so knowing what your core values are and being able to translate those core values for people into behaviors like what does this actually look like? What does this actually mean then in terms of how we talk to each other, how we communicate with each other? That's that's really key. And I think too many people assume that it should just be obvious or people should just know. And putting words to it is really valuable. And the other piece of this is that whether you're a startup or a big company, you want your culture to support the execution of the strategy. That's what I was saying before in that culture is not just a piece of the game. It is the game. It's the whole thing. So when you think about the strategy to be successful in the marketplace, that is going to require a certain set of beliefs and behaviors. Well, you want to be able to build those into your culture. And so being able to talk about what your culture is through that more comprehensive and connected lens is really, really critical. Wow. Well, we're going to take a quick break right now for station identification, Laura, and a word from a few of our sponsors. But stay tuned, folks. We've got lots more to come with our guest, Dr. Laura Gallagher, talking with us today about company culture. This is Doris Nagel, and you're listening to The Savvy Entrepreneur Show. You know, you mentioned something in the first half of the hour that I want to come back to And that is, you mentioned that you help people have difficult conversations. Talk a little bit more about what that means to you and why that is so important for you. I think it has its roots so much in how I got started with my career. So, you know, you mentioned in your introduction my experience working with NASA at Kennedy Space Center. And, of course, you know, when you look at a tragedy like what happened there, 
there are so many factors, way more than what we could really talk about on this show. And so I, I don't ever want people to misunderstand and oversimplify what happened. It's way too easy to do that from the outside. The thing that stood out to me so much as a psychologist when I began working there was, again, just as one piece of this whole story, there were engineers at NASA that were genuinely concerned. They were concerned about the safety of the astronauts. People may not know the, the technical elements. You know, what happened with Columbia is that a piece of foam fell off the external tank during the launch and it struck the orbiter which I didn't know what that was before I worked there. So that's the part that actually looks like the plane. That's what we think of when we think of the shuttle. Um, uh -huh. It hit the orbiter and they didn't know exactly where it hit. They weren't quite sure. It was pretty far into the flight. And so it was very high up. And so they had some video, but it was a little bit grainy. And so there was a lot of uncertainty. Um, they didn't have, they didn't know for sure that there was a, a hole in the wing. Um, they didn't find that out until after the accident, until it was too late, but they were worried about it. And there were some people who, despite their concerns, ultimately allowed themselves to be silenced because there wasn't a strong enough sense of complete psychological safety for an, an engineer, for example, to be able to stand up in a meeting room, you know, filled with senior managers and say, you know, I think you're wrong. I think this is dangerous. I don't want you to dismiss this. And then, you know, continue to push it and continue to push it. Like that's a very scary prospect, especially when there's uncertainty. Why was it so difficult? So a lot of different factors. So one of the things that was working against, because, you know, NASA had seemingly a great culture. Like in 2002, it was rated the number one place to work in the federal government. And that's been pretty consistent, you know, in the years since. NASA is a great place to work and people are incredibly dedicated there and they're super smart. And so part of the challenge, um, my business partner, Dr. Philip Mead, who was leading that culture change initiative to start with, part of his challenge was how do we figure this out? Because we're a good company. We're a good organization. Like what what's the deal here? And it comes back to the intentions and impact thing. So. There were several things that were working against them that they weren't quite aware of. So the simple idea of the foam falling off the tank and hitting the orbiter, that had happened before and it had never been catastrophic. Most of the time when foam had fallen off of the tank and hit the orbiter, it was in the underbelly where it had a much stronger, you know, reinforced carbon-carbon tiles. And it was something that they would deal with when they were processing the orbiter for the next flight. It was never something that was destructive and catastrophic upon reentry before. So it's this normalization of deviation. It's like, hey, this isn't supposed to happen, but eh, it's happened before and it's never been a problem. So there's there's that as an element. There's also the simple fact that there are so many anomalies. Every single time a shuttle mission went off, they were looking at a million, not a million, that's probably too many, but they were looking at least at dozens, if not hundreds of things that had happened during the flight to try to understand okay, what happened? What can we learn from this? Does this create a problem? It was never just like, well, there's one big thing that might be a problem. Do we ignore it or do we talk about it? There's always so much that's going on. And then the other big challenge that was working against them is they did not have a clear path. So they were aware that maybe there was a problem, but even if they were to discover that there actually was a large hole in the wing, they did not have any plan as to what to do about that. And so even subconsciously, that can create a block for somebody where if I feel like I don't have any idea what I'm going to do to try to solve a problem, I might subconsciously convince myself that it's not a problem. And I think that's at least one part of what was happening. And of course, you've just got so many influences on these human beings who are trying to make these decisions, right? So things like safety and engineering, those functions were underneath the program. And the managers, the most senior managers for the program are primarily concerned about schedule and budget. So that was an organization design flaw that they needed to mm -hmm. change in order to give safety and engineering an equal seat at the table, which, you know, helps with that psychological safety piece. Giving right. each person a sense of I have enough of a voice that I can speak up here. And I if I'm the director of engineering, I'm not going to be as afraid to speak up against the director of the shuttle program as I am if I am two or three levels down in the organization, right? There's just right. human dynamics that happen around power, plus the uncertainty. Nobody was sure. Nobody was confident 100% that this was going to be a disaster. They were just concerned that it might be. But just the simple fact of we want to create psychological safety in every organization so that when people have fears, 
they are listened to, listened to enough that they can actually articulate it well enough that others might understand. I mean, most right. of us know the experience of somebody's describing something and they're not doing it very well and it's kind of confusing. And so we don't really listen very well. And then they stop talking and we still don't get what they were talking about. Right? <laughs> most of us know that experience. And so that's part of what was happening. If the engineers weren't articulating it in a way that the managers could understand it well enough, they would just be dismissive. And simply because, mm -hmm. you know, they're dealing with so many things all at once. And so being able to set aside any ego, any arrogance, any I think I know better than you or I don't have time to listen to this and really be able to create space to trust the human beings that you've hired into your organization so they can have those conversations. They can feel safe enough to disagree. That's a key example of a hard conversation. And that's obviously the most extreme example. But there are huge implications, financial implications and and other organizations have safety implications as well. So we really want to have all those hard conversations. Right. I'm thinking there's this organizational creep that often happens too. You know, I, I give the example of Enron and I was talking with a couple of my financial friends and somebody who didn't really know much about any of it and just said, no, this is criminal. This is awful. And, you know, my financial friends were like, well, you know, here's the thing. Organizations you know, they don't usually rush headlong off a cliff. Usually they tiptoe their way there. And, you know, a decision is made. Yeah, we're kind of close to the line booking this this way. But we really got to make these numbers or we may not even have our jobs. So, so just this once we'll do this. And then the next go around comes. It's like we got to bend it just a little bit more and the answer, the solution, the way out is around the corner. And in fact, it's, you know, it's often just <laughs> a gradual slide into a place where the organization never really wanted to be in the first place. There are a lot yeah. of these decisions, right? Right. And it's because we've got very strong psychological defense mechanisms built up around us. There's something called the fundamental attribution error. So if my favorite example of this is if I'm driving in traffic and somebody cuts me off, the fundamental attribution error says that I am more likely to attribute their behavior of cutting me off to, oh, well, they're just a jerk, right? Like that's who they are. But if I do the same behavior, I'm far more likely to give myself the benefit of the doubt and be like, well, I'm just really busy. I'm not normally like this. Right. And, and that, that kind of thing feeds into what you're saying, Doris, with this example, right? if we start to go down a dangerous road, we make these really strong excuses in our own minds about how I'm not normally like this, or this is just for this purpose, or I'm actually a really good person. And we lie to ourselves without realizing it. And that, that same thing stops us from learning from history. Like anytime I talk about the NASA example with Columbia, I want people to be able to put themselves in the human shoes of the people making the choices and see how they could also make those choices instead of going, gosh, what's wrong with those people? Because right. that's where we really miss the boat is when we think yeah. that we're not susceptible to the same thing. So how do you and Gallagher Edge break through some of those barriers to help people have the difficult conversations that need to happen in most organizations, quite honestly. At the highest level, we help people become aware of what their own defense mechanisms are, because we all have them. And we're very creative as human beings. We have lots of different ways that we, we show our own defensiveness, and we don't always recognize it for what it is. So we start by helping people become aware that, A, everybody has these defenses, Congratulations, it's part of being human. So let's all just get past that and go, yep, we've got them. Okay, cool. And then we help each person figure out what is it that they're really defending against? Because it's always internal. It's always some kind of internal fear that they have about themselves that they're actually defending against. It's never that they're defending themselves against somebody else. And once they can work through, what am I defending myself against? Then they realize that whatever it is that they wanna to say to somebody is not nearly so scary anymore. So if I find myself judging somebody else because I think that they're doing a poor job, right, or like I feel like somebody's just lazy. So that's me being a critic. And a critic is a, a form of defensiveness, right? 
So really what's happening, let's say that I'm a leader and they're an employee and I'm like, oh, they're just lazy. Like, how can I possibly have this conversation with them? They're going to shut down. I can never say that to them. Right. Let me stop you there. So you said that's a form of defensiveness. How is that being defensive if somebody is not pulling their weight on the team? So it means that when I say somebody's being defensive, it means that they are making the other person's behavior about them without realizing it. And because that's a painful thing to think about, they distort how they see the world. So they don't have to to think of it that way. So I'll, I'll be more specific. So if I'm a leader and I have an employee that I think is lazy, subconsciously, it's probably triggering all kinds of internal insecurities about my capability as a leader. Right. Like, am I not motivating enough? Am I not clear enough that I do a bad job in hiring? You know, like what I am failing in some kind of way as a leader. But that's a painful thing to think about. I don't want to think about that. I want to think about myself in a really positive light. And so without even allowing myself to become aware of those internal insecurities and fears about my own incompetence as a leader, instead, I distort the world around me and I simply apply a label to this person and I'm critical of them. Right. And there's like this edge. It's a judgment. I'm not simply mm-hmm. noticing their behavior and the gap between how they're showing up and how I want them to show up. I am judging them because when I do that, I get to discharge some of the pain that's coming up for me. But I don't know any of this is happening. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm just thinking you probably can help people in their personal lives. Oh, my too. gosh. It's so true. <laughs> But, you know, I think the question I have is, how do you become aware of it? How do you help people understand that, you know, the joke is it's all about me. You know, we're the me generation. And yet what you're saying is it really is all about you or me when you're looking at under the microscope, because all you're doing oftentimes is projecting something you're feeling or fearing or seeing onto other people or a situation. Yes. Got that right? Yes, that's one part of it. So projection is is one piece of it. And there's other ways that these things can relate as well. So one of the sayings that we use a lot is what bugs me about you is really about me. And that's calling out defensiveness. So if I feel emotionally triggered, frustrated, angry, you know, insert word here, And that I'm directing that towards you. Really, what's happening is there's something about the way that you're behaving that part of my brain, I'm making that about me. I'm making it about, oh, if if you liked me more, you wouldn't do this to me. Or if you thought that I was more competent in my job, you wouldn't treat me this way. Or if I was more important to you, you wouldn't act like this. And so there's some kind of subconscious story that's going on for us a lot of the time. And that's actually what we're responding to in the world. And so what we want to do is help people understand what is that story in their head. And we do that through these these experiences that are designed to elicit emotion around these things. And then something that we do that we almost never do in real life is we might have a five minute interaction between humans and then we spend 45 minutes talking about those five minutes. So we go super deep into what was happening. What were you thinking? What did you say? What was your intention? Well, what did you get? And when we really start to break it down, we realize how many little tiny disruptions come up or all of the ways that we're not being fully open and honest with each other. And it does impact the other person. So that's a big part of how we help people see themselves differently is we create so much more space. You know, experience is not the best teacher. Reflected experience is the best teacher. And we do that to a pretty big extreme to help people understand their own emotional responses to things. Well, and I can envision those kind of group exercises probably help coworkers understand each other better. Oh, hugely. Absolutely. You know, I could just see going, I'm sure you felt la la la. And they're like, no, I, I didn't feel that way. I felt this other way. And you're like, oh. Wow. Mm-hmm. I would have never, never thought that this person would be hurt by that or would be thinking those kind of thoughts, you know? Yeah. And and that level of self-awareness makes it easier for us to have conversations where we can be self-accountable. So if you said something, Doris, and I took offense, I felt offended instead of me thinking, oh, gosh, she's such a jerk. 
I can be self-accountable and self-aware that like, that's my own stuff. You know, if you said something and I had an emotional reaction to it, I get to own my own feelings. I get to own the story in my head about it because that's what I'm responding to. And it doesn't mean I don't talk to you about it. It means when I talk to you about it, I am very clear that I am just sharing with you my experience and I'm inviting you to share your experience so we can talk, you know, and cut through the noise and cut through a lot of the BS that often happens in those conversations where we're trying so hard to not hurt each other's feelings or shut each other down. You talk about your experience. I'm going to talk about my experience. Yours is yours. And I want to hear what that is because I value you as a coworker and it's going to help our relationship if we can co-create this together. And that's what makes those conversations not so hard. Yeah. Well, and I think what you're implicitly talking about, and I relate to this because one of the things I like to focus on is helping organizations partner more effectively. And so a lot of what you're saying is it's just totally congruent with the world of effective partnering where people say, well, I want you to be my partner. And they do all these things that cut against what they're saying. They clearly don't value you as partners or there isn't a mutual, truly mutual benefit. But, you know, one of the things that I advocate with people trying to partner more effectively is a set of ground rules where things can be openly brought out. And I think you haven't talked about that, but I'm guessing that's in some way part of your engagements with clients, because I could envision that I'm going to say, well, I felt this way and I'm owning this. And, you know, there are people without rules of engagement who would just say, well, yeah, you know, see, you're a jerk. So, <laughs> you know, and shut you down. So that's not helpful either, because it's not helpful for you to be vulnerable if that gift is not openly received and yeah. responded to in kind, right? Right. We want to honor vulnerability whenever it's expressed. We want to thank somebody for doing something vulnerable because it, it's taking a risk and it's actually showing, hey, I'm trusting you in this moment, you know, to hear me and to not respond with judgment or not use this vulnerability against me. So it's actually it's actually a pretty beautiful thing that we can do as humans. And unfortunately, we don't always honor others vulnerability if it still triggers. But that's what the psychological safety is all about. You know, how can I achieve a level of self-acceptance for me that when you're talking about something, I'm not making it about me anymore, right? That's mm. like, I'm good. This isn't about me. I, I want to understand what you're saying so I can learn more about you and I can understand you. And I'm not going to make it about me because I'm okay. I'm good. You know, it's interesting. So it's clear that you do walk the talk. And I'm curious in terms of your business and the kind of clients you help, I'm going to guess there are certain clients that probably may call and say they want your help, but maybe aren't the best fit. So <laughs> talk about the kind of clients that really blossom with your help and guidance and the ones that may not really be worth your time and effort. So one of the patterns I've noticed is that leaders might approach me and the general theme, they don't use these exact words, but the general theme is, you know, I don't know if my leaders are quite quite who I need to take this company to the next level. Can you fix them? You know, like there's a little bit of that. And, um, yeah. and then that's fine. I don't discount somebody straight away if that's what they come with. What I do is in that first interaction, I find something real because in human interactions, it's so common. It happens every conversation. I find something real that I can share with them as feedback about how I am experiencing them and I gauge how they respond to that. So when I am using all of the tools, when I am open and vulnerable and I express to somebody how I experience them and ask a question about, you know, how if that's true for anybody else, how might that impact their effectiveness as a leader or things like that? I see how, how do they do with that? You know, do they freak out? Are they defensive? If they're defensive, I give them one more shot and I say, you know, the story in my head is you're feeling defensive right now. It seems like I've upset you. I'm sorry. I don't want to upset you. I do want to be able to talk openly with you about how we can solve this together. What do you want? And if those two attempts don't bring about a shift in their energy and their receptivity, then they're not a great fit for me. 
And if they if they're open and they will actually respond to the tools and the concepts and the ideas when I just use them, then they're probably going to be a great fit. And another piece of really common feedback that we've received is that the leader will say, you know, I really did kind of go into this thinking this was for all of you. Uh, and I realize now how much I needed this. <laughs> Those are the best clients and, and the ones who are pretty stuck in the like, leave me alone. I don't want to deal. I don't want to be involved or participate. Just go work with them. I actually won't work with those leaders. I won't do it. I, I think maybe in the beginning I took one or two where I was like, I'll get them to to step into this. And I realized really fast that, that that's not going to work. They have to be willing to invest the time and the emotional energy into doing the work. They've got to lead. They've got to, you know, model ahead of everybody else for it to really be successful. Yeah, interesting. Well, you started to talk about how your NASA experience formed your passion for this area. How and when did you decide to go into business for yourself and why? I started out thinking I would just do some executive coaching on the side. And I got connected with this really great leader in the Orlando area who wanted more than just coaching. He wanted help with his organization. And so it's not the only variable, but it actually kind of grew faster than I had anticipated. And when I was facing the prospect of being at NASA for a very long time and, and being asked to shift and move into different functions and do different kind of work, because that's something that NASA expects of its leaders. And I think that's very important. It's important to not be siloed and then move up into leadership. It's important that you get a lot of different experience. But I was like, I really like doing this work and I care more about being able to do the work that I love to do than I care about working specifically for NASA. And so when I felt like I had a good chance to really go out with my own company and, and get to work with all kinds of different organizations, I was so excited to do that. And I was working with pretty small businesses at first, you know, 20 people, 50 people. And I was working with the CEOs in the C-suites. And so I was getting to experience and contribute to full culture change throughout the whole company because it was, you know, 20 people or 50 people. And it was so exciting and so rewarding. And it made all of the extra stuff that goes along with being a business owner and an entrepreneur totally worth it. I'm sure it must be very rewarding. I have no doubt that there are quantitative measurements that come along with cultural improvement. So it's not just about feeling better and, you know, less tension in the workplace, but I am sure that there are all sorts of trickle down or trickle up effects when you improve the company culture, right? Absolutely. And it's funny because, you know, I'll share some numbers with you and up to this point, I have experienced an abundance of leaders who they already believe that it matters. They already believe that it has an impact. They're not coming to me going, okay, prove to me with the numbers that I'm going to get a return on this investment. So far, you know, if you think about concentric circles, there are so many leaders who already understand. They know how much culture matters. They know how much it matters, how the human beings feel in the organization. They don't need me to try to prove it with data. Eventually, perhaps I'll get to the point where I'm talking to leaders where I first have to prove to them that they should care about culture and should care about their people. And then I'll actually help them with it. But right now, there are so many leaders who already understand that it's important. They're just looking for help. So I'll say that much. And my favorite set of statistics to to quote from when we talk about culture, it comes from this longitudinal study that was conducted where they were looking at ineffective cultures and effective cultures and the differences over an 11 year period when it came to their increase in net income and revenue and stock price. And the the numbers are they're so big, it's kind of hard to even imagine. So like ineffective cultures over an 11 year period, their net income increased one percent. OK, like that doesn't sound great. It's an increase. But 11 years, one percent, that's a little rough. Effective cultures, 756 percent. What? Yeah. Like over over an 11 year period. Right. So like what? when things are humming, it's a huge difference. Huge. It's like I don't even I mean, it's hard to even fathom that number, but it's a really, really big difference. And it definitely has a compounding effect over time. So I think yeah. sometimes leaders are afraid once they understand culture a little better and how much intentionality is required. Sometimes they're afraid of putting the time in 
and they they're underestimating how much time and money they're losing when they don't. Oh, great, great point. Well, we're almost out of time. So, Laura, how can people reach you if they're interested in learning more about culture or about what Gallagher Edge does or, you know, maybe just want to brainstorm with you? I think the best way to get in touch is um, if you go to our website, GallagherEdge.com, and then there's a bunch of different ways that you can get in touch with me there. My favorite of which is our, our membership site. So if you go to the join page, you can join for free. And we have all these five minute videos, like over a hundred five minute videos about all these different ideas. And so anybody can get in there and learn so much more. And then once you're a member, we do these monthly webinars and office hours and people can get direct access to me. And that's all totally free because I love this stuff. I love talking about it. And I genuinely believe that this stuff makes the world a better place. So I know a lot of people say that and it sounds really corny, but I believe in it for me and what we do at Gallagher Edge. So I would welcome conversations with anybody. Outstanding. Well, I'm definitely going to go and check that out and sign up. It sounds like a phenomenal resource. Laura, Dr. Gallagher, I want to say thank you so much for being on the show this week and being a guest. It was really a delight having you. Thank you so much, Doris. I really had fun. I did as well. That's our show for this week, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And thank you especially again to our guest today, Dr. Laura Gallagher, founder and CEO of Gallagher Edge. You can find more helpful information and resources on my website at globalocityservices.com. There's a library there of free blogs, tools, podcasts, and other resources for entrepreneurs. Because this show is for you, my door is always open for comments. I'd love to hear from you. You can email me anytime at dnagel, N-A-G-E-L, at lakes, plural, lakesradio.org. I promise I'll respond and the show will be better for your input. Now, be sure to join me next Saturday at 11 a.m. Central, noon Eastern time. We'll have another great guest and topic. But until then... I'm Doris Nagel, wishing you happy entrepreneuring.